This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. on Romans at the moment. Howard's absolutely smashing it as well as the people that have preached in this series. It's really blessing our G1C definitely at the moment following up on this so it's definitely a a good moment to be here this morning. I'm just going to read from Romans 8 before Howard comes to preach. Now if we are children then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation wakes in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was not uh, subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that if the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present day. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await for our adoption to sonship. The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God who is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen to that. Amen. Great. Let's pray, guys. Amazing passage. You could preach 25 sermons. So I intend to keep you here, miss your lasagna, you'll be here till Monday. Uh, right, but let me just pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We just marvel at just the, the jewels in this passage. Every one we could just stop and say, wow, let's look at the facets, look at the glory of it. But I pray, Lord, as we take an overview of it, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts. I pray, pray that you'd challenge us, that you'd unpack this word that we'd love you more but more than that I pray that you'd help us to live as those in your image uh, as your sons and daughters in in this broken world. Amen. Okay so I don't know if you've uh, got an iPhone or something like that but it's um, you can do these panoramic pictures where you kind of start like this and you you know you press it and it says go too quick you're going too quick or you're wobbling around or whatever I I try to do it at the um, Sagada Familiar, do the roof. It's in Barcelona, a cathedral, and I'm kind of doing this and then realizing that I can't quite get it over. But, but you get these things, but, but it's like amazing, it produces this amazing wide picture. And I think that, uh, you know, that, that Paul's doing that in, in the letter of Romans. He's, he's sort of scanning through and creating this incredible wide picture. And, and, um, I've often done that picture where you get your you get your kids or you get your friends to be in the start of the picture, and then they run round the back, and then they're in there again, and then they run. Back and, and I think that that it feels like with the with the letter of Romans, Paul's scanning kind of uh, the the redemption history, the story of of God's people in the world, and and some people keep popping up at different points. He's not kind of doing it uh, in a chronological order, but it, it's almost like in the background of what he's doing, the big story of God is in the background of, of, of this big panorama. So we're kind of looking at the view, but these characters and incidents keep popping up all the way through. And I guess the, the Jews uh, in the uh, crowd in Romans would have probably thought, oh yeah, I get what you're doing. Oh, I spot that guy, spot that guy, spot that guy. But the, the Gentiles or the Romans who were the predominant people in the church, they'd have probably thought, I missed it altogether. And the truth is, I think I've probably missed it altogether, but obviously somebody who's brighter than me didn't, and so this is what they say. If God is, uh, what Paul's doing is telling the big story of the world in Romans. So in Romans chapter 1, we have the story of creation. We say, is, he says, isn't creation amazing? Uh, we've got no excuse because we can see creation in God, but yet with the truth of God, we suppress that truth and believed a lie, which is almost like uh, the fall, which is we've also got. And then in, if we pick up the first uh, human in, uh, in chapter 5, Adam. It's the story of Adam in chapter 5, the first human. And then in back, back in chapter 1, we've got Adam's fall into sin. Humanity's choice to not believe God and to fall into sin. And then in chapter 4, we've got the start of God's big story with his people. We've got Abraham pops in in chapter 4, the faith of Abraham. Uh, Brian preaches about that. And then 
in, and then later on, scattered through, and we'll come to some of this more in detail next week, we've got Israel's calling to be God's son. He says, out of Egypt I called my son. And so we've got his Egypt's story popping in in chapter 2, and then more in 9, 10, and 11. And then we've got the, the freedom from slavery in chapter 6. Uh, we talked about slavery break, sla- being freed from slavery to sin. We preached out of the baptism, died into the water, coming out of the water, almost in the Red Sea, coming out of the Red Sea, uh, kind of the story of, of Israel's exodus. And then we've got chapter 7, we've got the, this whole thing about I tried to do the things I can't do and the law came and I sinned and all that. And that's almost like the giving of the law that happens in, in, uh, in uh, Exodus, but that's in chapter 7. And then in chapter 8, if you're tracking with me still, we've got, basically got, we've done God's freedom. God has freed his people from slavery, no, no longer under condemnation. The, the law of sin and death has set us free. Uh, from uh, the, We've been set free from the law of sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ. And then last week we talked about God's adoption of his son, now not Israel, but us, his people. And then uh, this week we're going to look at about being led into our inheritance. And I've called the, I've called the title Heirs of a New Creation. That's the only guidelines you get with me. I never use points. You get a vague title to give you a rough idea where we're going. Okay, so heirs of a new creation. And so what Paul's doing in this is he's basically saying, you heirs, your sons, because your sons, he uses the word sons not because he's sexist, but because of the Roman context was uh, the son would inherit the name of the father who adopted him and would also get the whole estate. So we're given God's name and we talked about sonship and not an understanding that, that we're not slaves anymore to fear. We're not slaves to, oh, God's not, God's going to get rid of us. No, He's chosen us and loved us. But actually, there's an inheritance. And I think the Jews who were listening would have thought about a little strip of land. Uh, called uh, that's called Palestine or called Canaan or called Israel and they would have thought yeah about that because every Jewish family was given a little bit of land a little bit of land to farm that's your inheritance and that's your that's what God has promised you when you come into land everybody's got an inheritance so the families would have had one and the the tribes would have had them and then Israel together the, the Judah and Israel together would have had this inheritance and they would have thought okay God's going to give us back that I'm heirs of that, and that's my inheritance. They're going to have that. But Paul's saying, no, 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 God's got a much bigger plan than just to give you a little plot of land. His inheritance, what he's going to give you, is the whole earth. He's not just going to give you this little plot of land and say, that's your inheritance. As my son, I'll give you this little plot of land. He's going to say, no, I'm giving you the whole earth. That's quite staggering. And he gives us a hint of that in Romans 4.13. It says, through faith, Abraham and his descendants, who are his descendants? Well, we did that, didn't we? You know, Isaac and Jacob and Esau and all those guys. But who, is, who are Jacob's descendants? Uh, so Abraham's descendants. All the ones who've got faith in God. So that would be us. We'll look at that maybe a bit more in more detail next time. But, but basically, we're Abraham's descendants. Those who are, he's our father, the father of all who believe, Paul says. So he's our, we're his descendants. And it's promised to Abraham... Not that he'd have this, this little plot of land called Canaan, but he would be the heir of the whole world. Not heir, heir of the whole world. He would get the whole world. Now that is our inheritance. Basically in Psalm 2, uh, uh, God says to, to, to his king, ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. And that's a, a, that was almost a psalm about David, but it's a psalm about Jesus, and it's a psalm about all those who are in Jesus. His descendants, Abraham's descendants, Christ's descendants. So the whole 
earth is our inheritance. The whole earth is going to come to God's people. And so we're not just, when we're talking about heirs of a new creation, we're not just saying, well, I'd like my life and my family and my children to be nice and tidy and and sorted out. God, give me that. No, he's saying, no, I'm going to give you that, but I'm going to give you the whole earth. I'm going to give you the whole earth. And so the scope of this story that Paul's painting in Romans is massive. So it says, if we're God's heirs and we're God's children... And heirs and co-heirs with Christ. And so there's this sense of that we're tied, our future is tied up with the whole earth. And that's not like that Paul's made that up. In the beginning of Genesis, it said God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase and rule over it or subdue it. What he said to Adam and Eve at the beginning is, you are to fill the earth and rule over it. So what's, what's happening with humanity It happens to the the whole earth. We've often got this idea that that actually what happens to the whole earth affects us. And, you know, you get the climate change debates and you get pollution and you get this kind of idea that actually we're victims of what happens to the earth. But actually, the Bible says, no, what happens to you affects the whole earth. So actually, we're we're the ones who affects the whole earth. So right at the beginning, when uh, Adam and Eve uh, sinned, they, as Paul put it in his words, he puts the exchange of truth about God, that he's good, for a lie that God's grasping mean and tyrannical. When they sinned, when they said, I'm not having you, God, what happened is that they felt the impact of that. So they separated themselves from God's life and God's love, and suddenly what happened is death and sin and curse comes into the world. But also what happened to the world was the world cracked. The world broke. It's a, the, the, the theologians call it the fall. In other words, what happened was the world that, got, that Adam and Eve had been given to rule over suddenly messed up. So instead of seeing a, a great and glorious world, sin entered the world. He put it in Romans 5. Romans 5. Sin entered the world through, through one man. That would be Adam. And death through sin. In that way, death came to all people. So we've got this world now of, of brokenness and sin and death and disease because of what happened to us. Basically, what we do is we, we look at the world, we inhabit the world, and you can see that the world's beautiful. You can see it's got great mountains, particularly if you come from Canada, you get it better than if you come from Manchester. But, you know, if you, can, you can see the glorious kind of creation, and you can say, wow, isn't it amazing, isn't it wonderful? But actually, at the same time, mixed in with this, you can see a world that's broken and damaged and cracked. And you can see sin and death and suffering and disease and decay. So we've got this kind of world that's a hint of what it should be. And so you can see creation and go, wow, isn't it amazing? I can see God's fingerprints all over this. And you say, what a great world we've got. But also, we've also got this world that's cracked and damaged and broken. And all of you will understand that. All of you live in that world. You'll all feel that maybe sin is, is a struggle, a battle. You might, be an imp- you might have been impacted by someone else's sin. Someone else's behavior might have hurt you and damaged you. You might have felt suffering and disease. You know, you might have had cancer in your family, or you may have had, uh, had, had a death of somebody you think, well, they're not old enough. 
Even when someone dies when they're old, that's a result of the world that's cracked and broken. Death is this kind of intruder. You've heard me talk about this. This intruder that's, that's in here that shouldn't be there. And so we see this world that's, that's got trouble. And as Paul says, trouble and hardship and famine and poverty and danger and sword. We've got this broken world. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, I couldn't fit his name on my slide. He's a, a Russian uh, Nobel Prize winner. He talks about this kind of broken nature of the world. He said... It's talking about evil in the world. It says, if only it were all so simple. If there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it was necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and then destroy them. In other words, the way, if the way to get rid of evil was, okay, that person's evil, that person's evil, that's bad, let's just tackle them away and let them suffer death. But he says, no, you can't do that. He says, the dividing line between good and evil doesn't pass between states, you know, Canada good, America bad, or, you know, or Scotland good, Wales, whatever. You know, it's not between Russia bad, Cuba good. It was interesting, Fidel Castro died this week, didn't it? And you got one person saying, he was amazing, he brought this and brought this, and you get all the other ones saying, he's terrible as a tyrant. Uh, and it doesn't pass between, you know, America good, Cuba bad, but it, it, it passes all between classes, well, those lazy, scruffy, working-class people, they need to get off their backside and stop living on benefits. And, we, you know, what about those horrible bankers that live in, you know, they're, they're greedy and corrupt. Yeah, it doesn't pass that way. It doesn't pass between political parties, and I find this most difficult. You know, Labour good, Tory bad, Tory, you know, whatever. It doesn't pass through that. He says it cuts right through the heart of every human being. In other words, if, you, if you're looking for evil in the world, the first place to look, if you look for the impact of a broken world, the first place to look is, is in here. And basically he says, how can you divide your heart? How can you cut through your heart and say, this is the evil part and this is the good part? He says, even the most evil hearts can respond to, good, to truth and goodness. And we see that sometimes when people tell their amazing stories of becoming Christians. You think, their hearts seem so evil, but yet we believe that even the most broken and damaged person, God can change them. But also, the most righteous <laughs> person, Solzhenitsyn says, and I agree with it, there's an unuprooted corner of evil. So we've got this world that's marred by disease. A world marred by disease and disorder and decay. And Paul says it in our chapter, he says, for creation was subject to futility or frustration. We've got this broken world, not by its own choice, creation didn't decide, but by the will of him who subjected it. God said, what happens to Adam and Eve, what happens to humanity is going to affect the world. And so now it's in bondage to decay. And we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Some of you might relate to that more than others. But the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. It's, that it's creation is this broken creation and, and it's groaning and saying, it shouldn't be like this. It's almost as he personifies creation and creation saying, why it shouldn't be like this. You know, so you watch your David Attenborough programs and you watch the snakes chasing the lizards or whatever happened, went viral this week. And, and you think, well, okay, it's all interesting, isn't it? But actually, it's kind of nature red in tooth and claw. We've got this kind of broken world. And actually, creation is saying it shouldn't be like this. In fact, Isaiah, I'm really off my notes now. Isaiah is saying the lion lies down with the lamb. The world isn't meant to be like this. 
It's not meant to be where, you know, it's not meant to have kind of abuse of footballers. It's not meant to have men committing adultery and having sex. It's not meant to have issues of greed. and It's not meant to have those things. It's not meant to have the the diagnosis when the doctor comes to you and says, there's cancer. It's not meant to have those things. Creation's groaning and, and saying, the world's something wrong with the world. Uh, you know, I could go into that rap that I always try and do and do it badly. <laughs> Black Eyed Peas, something's wrong with the world, something's wrong with it. Yeah? Something's wrong with the big bad world, mama. <laughs> go and watch it on YouTube. But you get this idea, and Paul is saying that, that the world that we've been given as our inheritance, we've damaged and broken it. And it affects us. So he says, it's not only so, not only creation, but ourselves. We've received the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we await for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. It's almost like we have this same sense of, my body's broken. I'm getting older, I'm dying, my body struggles to do what's right. I, I, I'm part of that broken world. I commit sin, I hurt other people, other people hurt me. I've got that sense of, and we think, oh God, would you make it right? And, but Paul says he started, God started to make it right. He says you've got the, the first fruits, the, the little deposit, you've got the start in your heart of a world that's been made new. The Holy Spirit, when he fills you and makes you a Christian, in your heart you've got that start of a world made new. He calls it the first fruits, which comes from the idea of a harvest. In other words, you take the first bit of the harvest and they used to hold it up in the temple and wave it before God and say, this is the promise of a harvest to come. And he's saying, you've got the first fruits in your life. You've got the Holy Spirit, which is the promise of a world that's going to be made new, a world that's going to be different. And we, we want to be different. In fact, Paul promises, God predestined, he's decided beforehand that we be conformed to the image of his son. We won't be conformed any longer to Adam and his broken world and his damaged, diseased, death and decaying world. We'd be conformed to the image of, of him. This is our God. The one who's died, that's our God. The one who's raised, that's our God. We're going to be conformed to him, the firstborn. That means the one who's got the first place, but also the, it's almost like the first of many. First fruits and harvest, firstborn and people. So we long to be like him. So we live in this world that's cracked and broken. We live in this world that's diseased and damaged. And yet, when as Christians we think, oh, I want the world to be different. I want the world to be transformed. I want the world to be changed. So we long for a world made new, but Paul says, oh, this is how it's going to happen. He says, we are God's children. If we're heirs, then we're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. In other words, we get the whole world is coming to us. If indeed we share in Jesus' sufferings, in order that we might share his glory. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth the glory that will be revealed. It's actually better for us rather than in us, it says. It's almost as if God's going to do this amazing thing in the world where the, the first fruits are going to become the whole harvest, the first ones are going to become everybody. And we're going to see this, like this, uh, uh, N.T. Wright describes it like this, amazing firework display of God's goodness that goes, wow, amazing. 
But we live in this world of suffering. But Paul says the sufferings aren't aren't anything compared to the glory that's going to come. Elsewhere he says, I consider these momentary light afflictions as nothing compared to the glory that's to come. So we live in this world of brokenness and sin and death, and we're longing for this world to come. But how do we, what happens while we're in this world? It's not that you become a Christian and God, I still love Star Trek, beam me up, Scotty, you know, and then suddenly here you are in heaven and glory. That would be quite nice, wouldn't it? Everyone would be doing it. If you could escape this horrible world and go into this amazing, beautiful world, wouldn't that be fantastic? That would be great. I'd love to do that. But he doesn't do that. He saves us. In fact, he prays in the garden. We sang the God who prays in the garden. Jesus prays in John 17. Maybe it's before the garden, but around that time he's in the garden. He says, I pray that you don't take them out of the world. Think, God, what are you doing? Take us out of this broken world, please. Beam me up. I pray that you don't take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. He says, I do that, that their joy may be in them, that my joy may be in them. You think, God, you're crazy. How can you leave me in this broken body, in this horrible, broken world, and say, that's where, that's going to be the best thing for you. That's going to be joyful and amazing. Because you think, no, I want to live in this great world. Oh, there it is. It's in a different order, but never mind. I've said that already. <laughs> so don't be the front. Uh, Peter says this about honour. Is it there? Oh, goodness me. Okay. Well, he says, doesn't he, that, that there's a sense where he's saying you've got to suffer. There's that suffering. Indeed, if you share Jesus' sufferings, you've got to share his glory. In other words, if you want to inherit his inheritance, you've got to walk his walk. And I find this really hard. Because I think there's lots of stuff where it tells you that if you become a Christian, nothing bad's going to happen to you. Everything's going to be lovely and amazing. No one's going to hurt you. Nothing's, you know, your kids are going to turn out great. You know, you're never going to lose your job. You're never going to have disease. There's nothing bad going to happen to you. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, if you want to share God's glory, this great new world, you've got to walk in his, his life of suffering. And you think, oh God, I don't like that. I'd rather you didn't do it that way. But God's got a purpose for us because he wants to do something in us. And actually, I'd, I'd, I'd be bold enough to say that if you want an easy life, Christianity is not the life for you. It isn't the life for you. The easy life for you is to just make lots of money and just to live in a world of comfort and pleasure and hedonism and never worry about anything. No thoughts or concerns about a broken world. Just live Cheltenham life for the top 20%. Just live that Cheltenham life of comfort and ease and loveliness. You become a Christian and suddenly you realise, oh no, I'm living in a broken world. If you're not a Christian, you think, oh, that's just the way it is. You just, you know, Syria bombs, you just turn it off. You give you five pounds for the Christmas appeal and think, well, that's I'm done my bit. Yeah, the world's broken, but I don't, it never comes into my bit. And you just have your 21st century tr- struggles. But actually... Paul's saying, no, no, if you want to be an heir of the world, if you want to journey with me, you've got to feel the suffering of the world. You've got to join with Christ in that suffering. Peter says this in his letter, picking up the same idea. Don't, dear friends, 
Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come upon to test you, upon you to test you, as if something strange were happening. So we can have an idea that actually good stuff is meant to be happening to us all the time. And if good stuff's happening to us, that means God's been good. But actually, no, we, li- we live in a world that hates God. We live in a world that's hostile to God, that actually do- is not interested in God. And if you decide, I'm going to be one of God's children, if he chooses you, in that world, you're going to suddenly feel the whole thing's out of shape. And you're going to feel more struggles and more challenges. And, and, that's, and that should be nor- that's normal. Don't worry, it doesn't end miserable. But that is normal. The fiery trial is normal. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. In other words, take up your cross daily is not just a nice idea. It's actually saying, I feel the brokenness of this world. So that he might be overjoyed when his glory revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. So if you take a Christmas invite and invite your friends and they say, get stuffed, you're blessed. Really? No, that, that, that's, that's, what, that's what the Bible says. Why? Because when you're saying to a hostile world, a world that doesn't care about Jesus, I want you to know about Jesus, they are not going to love you. They're not going to say to you, Please, tell us all about the truth. They're going to say, as they said to Jesus, crucify him. Away with him. Get away with him. Let's stone him. How dare you? And I get sad and think, Jesus, Father, Son, Spirit, why? If, if I was God, I'd make people become Christians a lot easier. You know, I'd play golf with an unbeliever. I'd get a nice part. He'd say, the shine of God must be upon you today. <laughs> And fall upon his knees, making sure he doesn't kneel on my line of my put, and say, what must I do to be saved? Wouldn't that be, wouldn't you have God do that? Why doesn't he do that? I don't know why he doesn't do that. But what he's saying is, we're in a broken world and we've got to live in this broken world and expect broken world stuff to happen to us. In fact, it's interesting, I thought about this. I thought, why does he say fiery ordeal? He's writing about the same time as, Peter's writing about the same time as Paul's letter to the Romans. He's writing about, about that time. And I googled fiery ordeal. Were Christians being burnt under Nero? Now a few of them were. But most were torn apart by lions and dogs or thrown to the arena or crucified or just executed with a sword. That, that's what was happening to most of the Christians at that time. But he chooses this idea of the fiery ordeal. So if you think you've got... I'm just look, catch Louis smile there. If you think your life's bad, you should have lived then, in the time of Nero, when this letter to Rome was written, when Peter's letter was written. Because then it was bad. You know, we're so pathetic. But actually, no, in this, he's writing to these people and say, you're going to get fiery trial. I think, why did he do that? And I, I thought, almost I had a moment of revelation. I think he's p- thinking of the fiery trial in Daniel 3. When you read in the Bible, you think, fiery trial, where have I seen that before? Fiery trial, I've seen that before somewhere. Why has he chosen fiery trial? Ah, fiery trial. Now what happens in Daniel 3 is Nebuchadnezzar, um, King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, 
the king of the whole world at that time, says, if you don't bow down to me, I'm going to throw you in a blazing furnace. Who are the guys called? Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Or as Andy Allen famously said, my shack, your shack, and a bungalow. (laughs) You remember nothing else but that, will you? So my shack, your shack, and a bungalow. He says, if you don't bow down to this this God, you're going to be thrown in the fiery furnace. And what they say is, well, we'll bow down to this God and we'll cross our fingers behind our back and no one will know that we're Christians or we're God's people. They don't do that, do they? What they do is they say, I am not going to bow down to this God. Who is your God? I'm not going to bow down to this God, whatever you do to me. I'm not going to do that. So he says this. They said, King, if you throw it, he says, well, let's make a blazing furnace and chuck them in. He says, King, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us. But even if he does not, we want you to know, Majesty, chest out, in his face, that we will not worship you or your false gods. Why do Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego face trials, fiery trials? Because they won't bow down. As I'm preparing this, I'm thinking, why has my life got the absence of suffering? Why has my life got the absence of fiery trials? Maybe because I'm bowing down. Maybe because... The way to avoid suffering as a Christian is to just shrink back and hide back and and just say, I'm not going to say anything. Paul says in this letter, uh, he says, the whole of creation is groaning for what to happen? The sons of God to be revealed. And we're saying, I'm not going to be revealed. I'm not because I just don't want the pressure I just don't want the fiery trial. I just don't want the audio. I'll just keep my head down. I'll just cower behind the sofa. Paul doesn't say in Romans 8, he says, and the whole of creation is waiting for the sons of God to cower behind their sofas. The whole of creation is waiting for the sons of God to watch the latest box set. The whole of creation isn't waiting for them to get the new fad diet. He says, the whole of creation is waiting for them to be revealed. Hello, this is where we are. We're the sign of an age to come. We're a little pocket, a little image of what it's like to live in the new age. That's why sin in the church is so horrible, because it says the new age isn't coming. What's the response to this? The response is to pray first. Paul says that we, the Spirit... The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We groan inwardly. And we, we, we pray in the Spirit at all times. He says, you know, we, we don't know what to say, but the Spirit helps us and prays. And elsewhere it says, Christ is praying for us. We, we have to pray. When the world is messed up and broken, the aim is not to shut your eyes and say, I don't care about this. The aim is to pray. God wants us to pray. God wants us to pray. If we don't pray, what we're saying is that we live in a broken world and we don't care. We're not interested in transforming the world. This is not our inheritance. Imagine you were given a big brand new house, of a massive mansion, and you lived in your old house and people were coming in, they were ripping out the fittings, you know, they were taking the big TVs, they were walking out the doors with the furniture. You'd go, whoa! What is this? 
and this is our world, and that's what's happening, and we just think, oh, just preach it to myself. We're just, we're not bothered. But actually, Paul says in another letter, he says, we have this treasure, this gospel, this truth of Jesus in clay jars to show, read it to me, that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Why does God let us suffer? Why does he put us in this world? He wants us to image him, but he also wants us to say, God, we need you. Paul says we're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. In other words, we have to pray, God, would you come? Jesus lives to pray for us. The Christ who died, more than that, is raised to the life, is at the right hand of God, and what is he doing? Interceding, what does that mean? He's praying for us. He's praying, Father, don't take them out of the world, but let them have my joy in the world. Protect them from the evil one. Let the love that's in me be in them, that the world might know. That's what he's praying. I want him to pray, give me an easy life. Give me this or this or this. Give me, give me a church that, 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 that makes me look great. Whatever your insecurity thing is. And we take that verse and says, all things works for good for those who love him have been called according to its purpose. And we project Western, middle class ease upon that. Now what he says is, actually, even if you face Nebuchadnezzar, it's all going to work out good. It's all going to work out good. This is a bit of a mystery for me where we're going, but let's see. Yes, so there we get to the fiery ordeal. And what do they do? What happens in this? We're nearly done here. What happens in this? Nebuchadnezzar then leapt at his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, what do they do? They throw them in the fire and they heat the fire up. The guys throwing the fire, they get burned. It's such a hot fire that they get thrown into this fiery ordeal. And then Nebuchadnezzar says to his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Who's in there in the fire with them? It's a Sunday school answer, isn't it? Jesus is in the fire with them. You might suffer. It might be hard. You might have to stick your neck out. You might have to do some things that are countercultural. You might have to say no to that lifestyle and yes to that lifestyle. You might have to do all kind of things. But you know, if you cower behind your sofa and are just a social Christian, get what the scary thing is, you might never meet Jesus. Because where is he? He's in the fire. I was talking to Andy Allen. He's out, so I can embarrass him. But we were talking last night. We went out for a quick drink. And I, and I was saying, you know, sometimes I just feel I've lost my zeal. I've just become discipled by Cheltenham. I've just wanted an easy life. I've told myself I'm too busy, or I've got this, or I need to do that, or I've got these other things. I need to, you know, and I've just been discipled by Cheltenham. And what's happened is, I've said, yeah, I'm really a Christian, but I haven't engage with what Paul says in Romans 8, that if you want to share Christ's inheritance of the whole earth, you've got to walk the walk he walks. If you want to wear his crown, you've got to carry his cross. If you want to share his glory, 
you've got to share your suffering. Now, that doesn't mean that we do this Catholic thing that you, you know, where they basically in the old monks, they would get themselves and whip themselves on the back and will share his sufferings. Now, what it's saying is that we're unashamed in the face of the world. When the world comes towards us, we're unashamed and we say, we will not bow down to you, money, sex, power, image. I will not bow down to you. Well, therefore, you're going to have no friends. You're going to lose your job. I don't care. Are you? People are going to despise you. And then we go, oh, oh, oh. Let me sink back into my sofa. But actually, if you step into the, if, if we dare to step into the fire, if we dare to say, I'll put myself out, it might be uncomfortable, it might affect my diary and my nice tidy schedule, and I'll come and pray, I'll do some bolder, braver things, and I'm speaking to myself as well, then you might just meet Jesus. Because you miss, he's in the fire. He's in the ordeal, he's in the challenge. So Paul is saying, you're the heir of a new world. But the world is broken and you're broken and, the, and, you, and you're groaning for the world to be different and please would it be different. But Paul says, no, you've got to share in, the, in, in Christ's suffering that you might redeem the world, that you might make the world different, that you might live differently. And so he's saying, come on guys, let's live bold and let's live brave and let's live large. And you say, no, but I, I don't. He said, well, pray, pray, pray in the Spirit. He says, you don't know what to pray. But the Spirit knows what to pray. I think that's, I pray in tongues sometimes, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. But what it means is you just, I don't know what to pray. And so you think, oh, I'm just pathetic. Lord, I, I pray you'd help me find enough money to give my kids Christmas presents. That's okay. But you know, the Spirit's praying, Lord, would you redeem the world? Would you bless the world and change it? And, and instead of destroying it, would you make heaven come down? And, and make the world new, that sort of revelation. That's what the Spirit's praying. And that's what Christ is praying. As he's on the cross, he's praying, Father, forgive them. He's praying, let your kingdom come. As he rises from the grave, they say, is it now you're going to make it all right? He says, no. But you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. Now go. And they go, hang on a minute. Where did they all end up? Bar one. Dead. This isn't a call to radical martyrdom. It's a call to say, guys, we've lived for so much less. We've lived for so much less. But you say, but what's going to happen in the, in the, when, I, when sin and pain and difficulty and disease comes? You're going to say, Jesus is with me. Jesus is with me. I spoke to somebody this morning. His life's tough. And she said, no, but God is great. My life's really bad, but God is great. The aim in life is not for us to just say, let's live easy. The aim of it is to say, in the midst of suffering, I'm going to share Christ's glory. There's nothing that can separate me from his love. That's where Paul finishes. He says, in all these things, doesn't he? He says, in all these things. In all what things? In the hardships of the world. He says, we are more than conquerors through Christ. Have we stopped being conquerors? In fact, we're not even at war. Never mind that. You know, never mind conquerors, we're not even in the army. You know, we're conscientious objectors. <laughs> oh no, I don't do that. But he says, okay, so what's going to separate you from the love of Christ? In the middle of the ordeal, in the middle of the furnace. Now Christ is going to walk with you. We'll separate us from the love of Christ. Shall trouble? These are rhetorical questions and the answer is, 
No. Shall trouble? No. Or hardship? No. Or persecution? No. Or famine? No. Or nakedness? Or no. Or danger? Or sword? No. Or someone sinned against you? Or a, or a world that's broken? Or something that doesn't happen? No. For your sake, Jesus, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, we walk the way of Christ. Glory comes through suffering. No. Paul says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation is going to be a separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Guys, we're heirs of a world to come. The world is going to be revealed. God is going to do it. But we don't want to be cowering behind the sofa. Disciple by Cheltenham, while that's happening, we want to share a part of it. I'm 56, and I think, God, why am I bothered about my life so much? I'm so unconcerned about the world that you've given me as as my inheritance. You know, you find in the Anglican church, they, they say, now let's pray for the church in the world. And I say, what? And they say, we pray for the starving children on the street. And I used to think, but there's something very profound about that. That says, no, we're here. This is our world. Something's wrong with it. We're angry about that. We're groaning with creation. The gr- creation's groaning for the church of God to be revealed. That's the mission we're on. It's just to fill the room with friendly faces. We're on his mission. If we never feel any hardship, we're probably never stepping into any difficulties. We're probably bowing down to all the gods in our culture. But God says, no, that's not our inheritance, God first. That's not what we're doing. We're going to pray and we're going to step in and we're going to believe him. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels or demons, nor the present or the future, nor any other powers, neither height nor depth, or anything else in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. When we break bread, we're saying this is the, this is the suffering. This is the broken body that... This, we sing that song... This song, this is Jesus in his glory. This is Jesus dying for me. When we take this bread and, and drink the cup, we're, we're saying, I share in his suffering. I willingly want to walk that way. I'm not seeking hardship and martyrdom or any of those kind of hardship things for the sake of it, but I'm thinking, I want to walk his way. It says he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And they're saying, you're going to die there, you're going to die there, don't go. He says, no. He says, for this very hour I've come. What hour have you come for? What are you here to live for? As you break this bread, and, sorry, as you eat this bread, you're saying, I'm sharing your sufferings, I join with you. But you're also saying, I am a son, a daughter of a world to come. This is a taste of the world to come. A world that God's going to make new. He's going to wipe every pain and tear from our eyes. 
That's what we're about. We're about renewing this world, people. So let's break bread together. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.